The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Yeah, and you know, just just you can just go slow because we just talked about it extensively. So this is a project that, or this presentation actually came from SIGGRAPH uh, this August. So I'm gonna skip around a little bit. And you might want to say just a couple of sentences about uh, Mike had a question about you know how did class projects start in this class and how did they evolve? And I said you will be a good example of how it started. So just say a couple of sentences about how you started. Shall I start like, with that? Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, I mean, I guess I had taken Ramesh's class in uh, the spring term before, your first class here, and uh, I'd been really interested in the camera sort of work. And so, I, you know, we, Ramesh and I had been thinking about projects after that class, and, and over the summer I kind of tried to develop some some ideas that might lead to a thesis. And, and I, so I guess coming into this class, when I took it, I, I had the intention to hopefully develop some project that I did in here into, a, into some thesis work. And uh, I guess, so that is a good place to start maybe if you're, if you're interested in uh, really developing a project beyond the scope of the class is to have some other good motivation to do that, like a thesis. Um, but yeah, then when uh, I did the, the final project for this class, um, I, I started thinking about some of the work that Ramesh had presented and, and working with uh, a, a post, uh, or uh, I'm sorry, a student at Brown who's soon to be graduating, <laughs> who has uh, done some work with Ramesh uh, back at Merle and, and really got excited about it and so ended up developing that into my thesis. And, and that's where this project came from. So It's a great example, as you'll see, it's a great example of beautiful theory, beautiful implementation, and impactful implementation. So those, those three criteria that we have, novelty, execution, and impact, are, 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 are just right here. It's, it's surprising it didn't win the best project award. <laughs> um, it was by a popular award, by the way. It was not my decision. <laughs> best project award. Uh, well, we had some really cool projects. Have you shown them the projects from last? Yeah, just very briefly, but so. the suggestion was we should talk about that more. So. Yeah. So well, I guess I'll just get started with this. Um, the goal here is to, to think about new ways of interacting with a thin screen device. And uh, imagine you know, if your screen could basically not only support on-screen touch interaction, but this, this type of uh, off-screen hover gesture interaction that we think about uh, here at the Media Lab in, in a lot of contexts. And so you see that brief example where I'm able to lift up my hand and interact in free space right in front of the screen. And here, here's another example where I'm manipulating an object and you know, I select it by touching the screen in sort of traditional mode, but I can pull my hand away and rotate it around like Skywalker. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, uh, this is kind of inspired by three uh, emerging areas in, in HCI and, and camera research. And one of them is uh, this new class of light sensitive display. Stop. You can mention if you covered some of this stuff. Yeah. Skip it. But Not how so this is okay. um, So th there's a. You all know how LCDs function. They're they're basically in a, a matrix of transistors. There's a, a couple of companies that are t 
taking that transistor matrix and embedding a single extra transistor that's uh, optically sensitive in, into the matrix. So that the net result is the entire LCD is a, is a large area optical sensor. Uh, and they're, they're using these for touch interaction. So that was one inspiration. And then the second versus uh, depth cameras, which you may have covered a little bit. Many, there are a couple of different techniques, but the upshot is that these cameras not only produce an RGB image of a scene, but a map of the scene, where for each pixel you have a measurement of the distance from uh, the camera to some object. And, and the third, I guess, is the sort of ubiquitous multi-touch display, which you know, has been popularized by Jeff Hahn here, uh, and you know, the CNN wall, and of course the iPhone, and a lot of other consumer electronics devices. Which are people are making good use right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're kind of inspired by the ability to so easily interact, or so intuitively interact with information on the screen, and thinking about, you know, can we take that one step further? So, you know, what if, what if you could combine all of these things, basically, and be able to, uh, you know, because it's an LCD, build it all into a thin package, but also, you know, because it's a depth camera, be able to track hands out in front of the screen. And so that's where we started. Um, I guess, oh yeah, the, the benefit of that, of course, would be that you can bring this depth sensing ability to all sorts of consumer electronics type of devices that don't have it, or where it wouldn't even be possible to think about today, like an iPhone or a laptop. So to give you a brief overview of the results, I, I think Ramesh may have sort of covered some of this. This is, this is basically a light field, uh, and you've probably seen some. So we just covered today. Yeah. So this is, this is what we're able to capture, and, and there you see a synthetically refocused image. You guys, I think you just did your That's synthetic awesome. aperture uh, project. So this is one application of that. We're basically taking this set of images captured by the light field, synthetically refocusing them, and extracting the depth. So uh, just to give you <laughs> some of the, I guess, to, to think about how to adapt one of these optical touchscreens. Uh, you know, if, it, it works a lot like a document scanner, where, where you have this array of pixels without lenses. An object that's, that's touching, the pixel, touching that layer of pixels it, uh, can have a sharp image made because you have a sort of one-to-one -one correspondence between a point in the scene and a point on your sensor, just by virtue of their being so close together. But of course, when you pull your hand away from that sensor, uh, you no longer have that one-to-one -one correspondence. Rays, many, you know, rays can travel from this object to many different pixels, and so you get a blur. Uh, so I guess our approach then is to think about, you know, a way we can basically bring that one-to-one -one correspondence back without uh, using any kind of lenses. And so what we do is, is separate the sensor by a small margin from the display and then display one of these types of masks that Ramesh was just describing to you guys. So in this case, what we're considering is using the LCD as both a display device for the user to see the images, uh, like a typical LCD screen, and also as a device to, to create one of these masks that Ramesh was describing in order to encode the scene in a way that we can decode in software. So here's a sort of idea of what that device might look like. You know, you, you have your LCD screen here, and, and some distance behind it, you have a sensor layer. And out here, you have objects. And you can actually decode, you know, the vision is that in this thin device, you could then decode this object 
uh, process the imagery and then redisplay it on the screen, maybe in a modified way, or uh, you know, in the case that I'm describing, to interact with the screen gesturally. And so this is a kind of interesting device. And I like to think about the, the pinhole analogy because it's very intuitive. Um, it's you know, thinking just looking at that mask, it's not quite clear to me what you get just just from an intuitive sense. But the pinhole makes a very easy case to think about. You know, if you imagine tiling those pinholes all across the aperture or all across the LCD, you get uh, basically many tiny cameras covering the screen, and each of those cameras has a slightly different perspective of the scene. And and putting those together, that that's basically a light field that you're capturing right there. Uh, and, and the interesting thing in thinking about this is, you know, when we uh, this is not a normal type of camera that, that you know, you're used to using uh, you know, to capture pictures of birthday parties or whatever. It's, it's uh, going to produce a pretty strange looking image because if you think about how you would image an object out in, the, in front of the device, um, first of all, it, it produces a, an orthographic image. There's no perspective here. You know, when I, let's say this is one of my pinholes, right? If I, uh, want to image something that's off to the left of my device, what I do is I take uh, maybe the, the pixel on my sensor that's over here uh, for each of these tiled pinhole cameras. And that, that ray basically goes out into the scene and uh, is you know, projected out in a straight line. So I, there's no perspective measured. It's all uh, parallel rays. And the other interesting thing to think about is that the you can see that the resolution actually does decrease. Imagine this blue is the size of my pixel. Uh, I can project that pixel out into the scene to sort of see what I'm measuring. And this, you can see that as an object gets further away, my, my pixel relative to the size of the object uh, is increasing. So just a brief tangent there. <laughs> but uh, I'll just show you a couple more ideas of how this <laughs> might go. You know, you, you might think about being able to navigate spaces by just moving your hand uh, in free space. and because it's a uh, because it's optically sensitive, you can think about where is this? You can think about doing a demo like this, where I'm actually taking a real-world flashlight and projecting it into a virtual scene. So uh, I'm taking you know real light and mapping that the light field that I capture into a virtual world. This is a, sort of an interesting mixed and reality. Uh, yeah, it seems a little... You can see there's a hand here holding a flashlight, and that's actually shining light into this virtual world. So, um, I guess maybe I'm going to skip over this a little bit, but the, you can think of there's lots of ways to accomplish this, uh, or accomplish parts of what I'm describing that don't involve uh, using the method that I'm describing. But if, uh, if you look at the entire package, you know, putting it in a thin device, being able to capture both, dodge, or both touch and uh, gesture, I think it becomes a pretty compelling idea. So just, this is, I, I think Ramesh has described a little bit about light fields before. I'm just going to cover the basic ingredients uh, that I found very helpful to understand the theory behind this. And if I'm um, 
covering something that you've already seen, you can stop me. But you know, in a, in a light field, let's let's just imagine that the two D case. You have a ray. The, the basic idea is you want to parameterize this ray. You want to describe a set of rays in a in a new space. So I have a ray that has some uh, intersection with a sensor plane, uh, and it intersects with some angle. So if I just plot the point where it intersects and the angle at which it intersects in this new space, uh, this is a light field, and you can see, you know, if I if I have a whole set of rays that creates a sort of line in the light field space over there, and then if I have Oh, well, this is actually important. If I, if I, oh, that's weird. <laughs> I imported this from PowerPoint, so not all of these. Okay, well, this is, it's important to note that one of these is what a real sensor measures. If you take a real sensor in the real world and just expose it to light without any lens or anything in front of it, it integrates rays from all directions. And so, what you're actually measuring in the light field space is one of these lines. So this is this is what a, a sensor array might look like. Now, if I um, if I think about the, the frequency domain picture of this of this space, uh, you know, I have some light field here that I'm I'm taking projections through basically, and that light field has some spectrum in the frequency domain. And, and as I mentioned, so these, these lines are projections through the light field. So there's something called the Fourier slice, uh, Fourier slice theorem, which basically says if I take a projection through a function in this domain, I'm actually taking a slice through my uh, spectrum in the frequency domain. So I guess the important upshot here is that if I am actually measuring this with my real-world sensor, uh, in the frequency domain, I'm actually measuring only what's along this axis. So this is the only thing accessible to me with a, a real-world sensor. And, of course, <laughs> what I actually have over there is that whole spectrum. And so the question is, how can I access that data? Uh, so the next important thing to keep in mind when trying to understand this is uh, the skew property of the light field, which basically says... You know, if I'm, if I'm going to plot a light field, I can either look at it from this perspective or from this perspective. So I can say, as my ray travels through free space, you know, I'm going to just plot uh, the light field that it creates over on the right side there. And you can see a kind of interesting effect where, as I add rays, um, a straight line in one, from one position in space becomes a skewed line at another position. And then, as uh, you may recall from basic sort of signal processing theory, if, if I perform a convolution function between uh, any, any array of delta functions and, and uh, some other arbitrary function, I get a sort of tiled version of my arbitrary function. So I'll just I'll tie this all together, I promise. <laughs> just try to keep these things in mind as we go. And then, uh, <laughs> I guess, I don't know if Ramesh has used the term spatial heterodyning, but I think it's a kind of cool historical note that uh, heterodyning is a word that comes from old radio broadcasts. And when we say, uh, it, it, it was really a technique that multiplied a voice signal by a high frequency signal in order to transmit it and basically shift that voice up into a radio spectrum that could be broadcast. And this is really what we're doing when we send a ray through a mass we're actually uh, multiplying that ray by some frequency pattern, right? 
spatial frequency in this case instead of time, but similar principle. And so to sort of bring this all together now, uh, imagine I have a the I create a mask that has a transform that looks like this. It's a series of delta functions, and uh, because I'm multiplying it in the in the primal domain, in the frequency domain, I'm convolving it. So I'm convolving my mask spectrum with the light field spectrum that I want to measure. And uh, so you, what you get is a tiled version of that light field spectrum. And remember that shift property. I've, I've offset my mask from my sensor a little bit. So uh, the mask, well, the light field that I've created is actually going to be skewed by the time it reaches my sensor. And so now you see the really cool, uh, insightful part of all of this is that if you look at what's on the fx axis down there, it's uh, you can see along this axis I get different portions of the spectrum. So I've now created a way uh, to measure pieces of that spectrum on my real-world sensor. So I can just rearrange those things and reconstruct a good portion of my light field spectrum. So the important thing to keep in mind, or I guess one important thing to keep in mind, which I guess goes towards uh, some of the discussion you guys were having before I began speaking is that you really have to make sure these light field spectral copies are band limited so that they don't interfere with each other. And I, I guess that uh, speaks to Ramesh's point from earlier. So in terms of building this actual prototype, you know, there's, it's all fine to do this in theory, but we want to actually do it in practice and see if we can, you know, what we're doing on paper really makes sense. So what we really want is, remember, an LCD separated from a, from a large area sensor by a small margin. But that's a really difficult thing to get. Uh, these things will be you know, out there in the consumer market in the near future, but they're not right now. So what we actually ended up doing was taking a couple of cameras and simply imaging a diffuser, much like a movie screen kind of shows you a slice of the light passing through a certain space. Uh, diffuser will just show us sort of optically what we would like to measure electronically in this plane. So here are the actual cameras that we used, and here's the uh, <laughs> here's one prototype. I hope we have actually a slightly newer one now, but the LCD was sitting in this screen, and this is a, a diffuser. Um, and then I'll just quickly sort of run through the software pipeline that we wrote. I won't spend too much time dwelling on this. But the basic idea is we want to time multiplex between you know, displaying an image for the user to see and illuminating that image from behind. And then switching to the mask mode where we, we don't want to illuminate it because we don't want to interfere with our measurement. And we want to actually capture the data that is uh, being modulated by that mask. And so I'll just play a couple of videos of the sort of data from different portions of that pipeline. So here you see the actual Mura code that we display on the screen. And so you know, this, this one doesn't look like cosine mask, it's yeah. a real binary mask. Yeah, this is the binary mask that Ramesh was mentioning. And it actually it turns out, if you recall from my sort of theory description, uh, the only thing I mentioned about the mask was that it has a, uh, a transform that's a series of deltas. So it turns out if you tile any code, you can get a, a transform that <laughs> ends up being sort of a series of delta functions. They'll, they'll have, those functions will have different weights, but it's kind of the, the Fourier series uh, effect, right? 
And if you type anything, you'll get jealous. Yeah. And the, I guess the reason that this mask was chosen was that it actually is sort of optimal in terms of light efficiency. So this mask allows 50% of the light to pass through, which is pretty remarkable considering we're you know, reconstructing an image without a lens. Uh, just for comparison, the pinhole allows something like 1 to 2%, depending on the size of the pinhole you use. And I think the, the cosine mask got 18. 18%. And there was a question up here about different between pinhole and uh, in this sense. Between 1% 50%. Yeah, so the, uh, the data that our sensor captures, and you were sitting behind the screen, this is what you would see, basically. If a hand is moving around here and touching the screen, uh, sort of hovering over it. And you can sort of see the high-frequency noise, or it looks like noise that the mass creates. And from that, we can decode this light field. So this is only, what, 20 pixels or something? Uh, yeah, this is so it's a 20 by 20 light field angularly, and then each each little tile there is uh, about 100 by 80 pixels. So you can see many views of that hand moving around, basically. And then from that light field, as I mentioned, we so for each frame we get this stack of images, or we, we can refocus that light field at a number of. Yeah, so is doing the refocusing, which is your first part of the assignment, in real time from this. Uh, 400 images, right? 20 by 20? Yeah. 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 And then once we have a, a refocused image for, for each, basically we have a whole stack of images. We traverse that image and use a method called depth from focus, where we basically look at the contrast in each of those images at each pixel. And, and from that, we get a depth map. And that's the basic ingredient into all of those interaction demos. And that's what sort of extra credit, the depth from focus <laughs> in your assignment. So um, I, had, yeah, I had some videos in there that. They don't work either. Any questions? Uh, so yeah, I think I think that's probably good. Yeah, that's right. Right. yeah. Yes. Uh, how do you implement this in real time? Because probably there can't be any competition. That's a mathematical. Well, no, luckily, uh, computers are very fast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this, actually, there's a couple of uh, even free Fourier transform libraries. One is called FFTW. And uh, you know, it, it optimizes itself to your hardware, and, and it, it can run very fast. So. Was this no, no, this was written in C, but it uh, it's running in real time. You can interact with it real time. Close to real time. Six frames per second. What do you mean by real? What what frames? So the the demo runs at about 20 frames per second. Right it's now. not 60 frames per second. Yeah, we're hoping to improve that. How about latency from hand to um, it's you know, one frame or something. Yeah. One or two frames, basically. Yeah, the computers are very fast. I just <laughs> <laughs> the, the key, the key is really to pick a Fourier transform uh, that can be broken down into small time factors, that, because you can implement that very quickly. But as long as you do that, it'll run, run fast. And Kevin, oh, what's the slowest part? The slowest parts are the parts that I had to write. <laughs> I mean, it, there are a lot of there are a lot of tools. Like OpenCV is a great tool for working with graphics in real time. Uh, a lot of you know there are Fourier transform libraries. Uh, the parts, things that are slow on a modern computer are memory accesses, and so I end up having big sets of data that I have to to sort of remap. You know, the for example. You can measure a 2D data from the camera, right? But then you have to work with 4D data. And you kind of have to remap it in a way that 
your Fourier transform library can understand it. And so that remapping is actually one of the longest steps. And it's just simply reshuffling things. And I guess one of the most challenging practical problems here is literally just synchronizing everything. While computers are very fast, they're also not very uh, reliable in terms of timing. So things can just happen whenever they happen. And especially with rendering things on a video card and trying to understand exactly when they're going to show up on a monitor. Uh, there are a lot of different and variable delays in that that are difficult to account for. So it's something I'm still <laughs> working on. So that's the kind of final project we want to see. So the <laughs> question, yeah. sure. why is the diffuser a key part of this device? The diffuser is just our stand-in sensor. Yeah, so Remember, I mean, this is, this is the key part, right? The, the camera of the future will not look like anything like camera today. Your LCD screen, a 15-inch screen is actually your camera in the future. It's just that right now we don't have it. Uh, yeah. So, 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 so you're using this as your, your sensor and then actually imaging the thing and then working from the image that you right. have. It's a shortcut. Okay, I see. Yeah. But in the future, you will, the whole thing will be a camera. So the, the somebody wants to take this concept further, by the way, of what would you do when the camera is... 15 inch wide, but only when you touch it, you get an image. It's like a document scan. When you take the, anything away from it, you just get a blurred thing. Uh, so if anybody wants to think about that further, I'll be very interested. Yeah, so they're selling these devices now. Uh, there's a laptop on sale in Japan that has a touch, like a trackpad that's mm -hmm. made from one of these optical LCDs. Right. So this is a very, actually, near-term technology. In a couple of years, it'll be everything. Right. So it's something cool to think about using. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, there, this is a very big parameter space, and there are a lot of variables to change. So the prototype that we built, we optimized for about 50 centimeters in front of the screen. But you know, you can think about changing, basically changing that separation between the screen and the sensor, and changing the pixel size of the screen and sensor, and all of those variables will allow you to control the range of depth that you want to measure. I mean, if you want to do it on a, on a device like this and just do however and so on, that would be a nice project. Like, doing it in a yeah. small form factor. You would just get to buy one of those laptops and take the camera. Yeah. yeah. And uh, <laughs> then the parameters would be very different because then you don't expect to interact from 50 centimeters away. You expect to interact with 5 centimeters. So, um, just to give some context uh, for the class, of course, you did not do this whole thing in, in real time. Uh, you, you you looked at only the capture part, is that right? Yeah, that's right. I, in fact, for the class, I um, I started with without an LCD because uh, there are a lot of hardware, challenging hardware issues with getting an LCD to work like like that. So what we started with was simply a printed mask. And there's a great resource uh, right here in Cambridge called PageWorks who can print very high resolution masks. I think that's what you yeah. use for your computer. So he did a static version first for the class and did a proof of concept, theoretical theory and, and, uh, and the static prototype. And then the two months after that, towards the cigarette headline, he did all these things. Unfortunately, the paper was not accepted despite all <laughs> great work and all the results. That tells you how high the bar is. Luckily, we got to cigarette Asia, so yeah. we got to Japan in the center. Yeah. It's cooler than Louisiana. <laughs> And then you're going to buy the laptop, right? That's right. <laughs> but it was cool enough that when he presented it at SIGGRAPH in New Orleans, he won the second best paper award, and second best 
Applications of cameras in general, not just like first cameras in general.